Uh, so far, uh, in, in this time as we lead up towards mid-October, when we're going to be launching a, another group of small groups, and I said that wrong, another, I can't speak, this is bad, this is bad sign. If I can't speak English this early in the service, uh, we're in all in trouble. Mid-October, we're going to have small group sign-ups. This is an important time, uh, not, a, not a small thing, not a peripheral thing. My conviction, coming away from God's Word, is that in addition to the importance of times like this, when we as God's people to gather together to enjoy Him all together, uh, there is a clear mandate in Scripture that as good as this is, it is not enough. I think we really do need, and that's not too strong a word, I think we need smaller groups of Christians where we can know and be known, where we'll be helped. I think we need one another. And so what we're doing is we're spending a little time in preparation for that season, that moment of decision as we sign up for small groups, to talk about some of the great one another passages in the Bible. And uh, as I've shared with you on previous Sundays, um, just in reading all the one another passages in their, in their total, all together, I, the Lord has just really filled my heart with an exciting vision of church that I've tasted, but never in its fullness. Guys, I really want to see something flourish and happen here among us at State Road that in my own spiritual life is unprecedented. I would love it. I would love for God to do a new, exciting thing here among us. And it has to do with these one another passages. I just get really excited by the great picture that God paints and today we're going to be spending time in Romans 12:10 specifically. But Romans 12, the chapter Romans 12 begins with these words. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He has just spent for a number of chapters in, in Romans, if we were working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Romans, he has laid out uh, a very clear and logical foundation for the basis of our hope as Christians. He has, in, over chapters, laid out the fact that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he has done that in ver with very compelling clear language. And so here he says, therefore, <laughs> in light of all of that, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, by the mercies of God. And I think what he's saying is what I'm about to describe to you is shaped by the, by the knowledge you have about the mercies of God, the, the knowledge of the things you've embraced. In other words, He's calling them to not just know the gospel, but that their community would be shaped by the gospel. It would be a gospel-shaped community that they live in, where the gospel would not just be known and understood, but it would be lived out by the mercies of God in light of everything I just said. And then in Romans 12, he's going to go on to describe the community of faith in some really wonderful language. And that's where we're going to be spending time today with just one verse out of that chapter. He says this in verse 10 of Romans 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, Some versions of the Bible, I don't know what version you use, um, but some versions, like the one that I tend to use, the English Standard Version, begins this verse with love one another. Others start it with be devoted to one another, and still some others say be kindly affectionate to one another. Those are all different words with slightly different shades of meaning, and one of the reasons why there is such a diversity among the different versions of the Bible on how to interpret the beginning of Romans 12.10 is because the word that Paul uses is actually kind of rare in the Bible. In fact, this is the only place in all the Bible where this word is ever used. Beyond that, it's actually kind of an uncommon word to find in written Greek anywhere. It's not unheard of, but it's not the most common word that we ever find even in antiquity in the documents that were written in Greek. In fact, the word there is philostorgos. That's the word. It's the Greek word, philostorgos. The Greeks had a number of different words for love in their language, and this is one of them. And this is the only time it ever occurs in the Bible. The most common word that we deal with as we talk about love in the Bible, at least as it relates to in the original Greek writings, is agape. You've probably heard that word. Agape is the word for love that most often occurs uh, in the Bibles and that we most often talk about in church. And agape is that kind of sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross. This is the word that Paul uses in the preceding verse. In Romans 12, 9, he actually says, let love be genuine. And then in verse 10, he starts by saying, love one another. But those are two different words. When Jesus said in the Bible, when he's quoted as saying, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, the, love that, the word for love there is agape. Again, speaking to that sacrificial love that Jesus Um, had for us on the cross. But that's not the word Paul uses when he begins Romans 12.10 by saying, love one another with brotherly affection. He uses this word philostorgos. And what in the world is that? (laughs) And how is it different from agape love? Well, like I said, this is the only instance in the Bible where it's ever used. However, after looking into the meaning and the various ways that this word was used in antiquity. I think I can illustrate the meaning of philostorgos this way. Uh, I personally never served in the military. Uh, But let's just imagine for a moment that I had. Let's imagine you did too. And let's just say for, for the sake of it that we joined the Navy. You might love the troops generally. You might respect them generally. Army, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Boy Scouts, you don't care. You love them all. You think they're great. But you feel something special for the Navy. And, of course, you feel that way because that's where you served. That's where you invested yourself. You have a sense of belonging to that. Well, that's something special you feel. The Greeks assigned that feeling a word, and it was philostorgos. Philostorgos speaks to our love for someone or even something that is separate and set apart and elevated from other like things. 
It speaks to familiarity, maybe long association. It certainly speaks to devotion and a sense of belonging to that thing. It is the special love or affection you have for something or someone that sets it apart and gives it an elevated place in your heart. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, the British uh, poet and author, he once wrote a poem, and one of the stanzas reads, God gave all men all earth to love, but since our hearts are small, ordained for each one spot should prove beloved over all. What Rudyard Kipling is there identifying is the human tendency towards Philostorgos. You might love the county, but you might have a special love, an elevated sense of belonging to the town where you live within the county. And that's Philostorgos. Or you might love Maine, but you especially love the county. That's Philostorgos. You might love all children everywhere, but you have an elevated love for your own children. That's Philostorgos. You might love the church and all its expressions around the globe and here in the county, but you have a special love and affection for State Road. That's where you're invested. That's where you belong. That's Philostorgos. Paul deepens the meaning of what he's trying to communicate in this verse here by employing another word for love at the end of the sentence, which, by the way, if you read Romans 12, 9 and 10 together and you interpreted these words as just love, it would say, let love be genuine, love one another with love. <laughs> love, love, love. He uses three different words for love in two sentences back to back. And Paul deepens the meaning. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a cold. Uh, the first sentence of Romans 12.10 begins and ends with a Greek word for love. It says, Philostorgos one another with Philadelphia. Now, both of those are Greek words for love. Now, we all recognize Philadelphia. That's Pennsylvania's largest city, right? And the founder of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a man named William Penn, named it that because he had some high-minded hopes for the place. So he took a Greek word meaning brotherly love, Philadelphia, and he gave that as the name for the town. He really wanted it to be a place where there was great religious tolerance was his reason for naming it that. So Philadelphia means brotherly love. And the word speaks to that special bond and devotion that exists between family members. So I guess Philostorgos and Philadelphia are related in that Philadelphia is a more specific form of kind of Philostorgos. It's a very, it's a Philostorgos for your family, and we call that Philadelphia. It's the special love and devotion and elevated warmth of feeling that you have for your own, your in-group, your family. That's Philadelphia. I remember several years ago, I told a friend of mine just exactly what I thought of his brother. His, bro his brother was not being very nice to me. And uh, I told him, I don't remember the exact words that I used. Thank you, Craig Moody. Uh, I don't remember the exact words that I used, but I think I said something like, your brother's a real jerk. And he said to me, hey now, uh, that's true, but he's my brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia doesn't mean we overlook the faults of one another's or we're just enthralled by one another or I can't see anything wrong with you. It's just that if, if somebody were to say to you, so-and-so is a real jerk, I'd say, hey now, 
That's true and all, but they're my jerk. You, you can't say that. That's Philadelphia. And I think sometimes in the church we see that um, our, our love for one another finds expression when we're attacked, right? Like we, we might have a sense of one another's faults and we might annoy each other and get on each other's nerves, but my goodness, I feel Philadelphia for you. We have some brotherly affection. We have a tie that is uh, pretty tight. So if we put all that together, feel a store ghost one another with Philadelphia... If I was trying to translate these words that we find in Romans 12, 10 into English, I would say it means something like this. This is the Josh Tate version of Romans 12, 10, very dangerous version. I would not recommend it. <laughs> Other scholarly people have done a better job probably. But here's, to help us understand these verse, this part of the verse, here's how I would translate it. Give these people, your church family, give these people that you have joined yourself to, a special place in your affections, like the one you have for close family. Give, feel astorgos, give these people, feel astorgos one another, give these people that you've joined yourself to at State Road a special place in your heart, like the one you have set apart for your own family members. I think that's what this means. When he launches into this love one another with brotherly affection, that's what those words mean, I think, if we take them at their, at their root meaning. This means be devoted to them, be present with them, be constant and faithful to them, be generous to them, and be affectionate. And there's the rub. <laughs> there's the rub. That's what's tough about this command. Not because you're unlovable. It's not that. I'm not saying this is a tough part of the command because I find you all repulsive in my heart. Nothing like that. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that I feel more comfortable with words like be devoted, be present, be faithful, be generous. Because those things, guys, those things I can obey through a movement of the will. But God... God, can you really command me to feel affection? Can he do that? Can he command feeling? And if so, how do I respond obediently to such a command if I don't feel it? Hmm. Well, let's answer the first part of that question. Can God command emotion? He certainly does. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, it is absolutely littered with commands to feel. For example, Psalm 110.2 says we're commanded to feel joy. We're commanded to give cheerfully. <laughs> we're commanded in Psalm 42 to feel hope. In Luke 12, to fear we're commanded in Romans 12:11 to feel zeal. We're commanded in James 4 to feel grief, 1 Peter 2 to feel desire, Ephesians 4 to feel tender-heartedness. Psalm 51, God commands that we feel brokenness and contrition. 
Colossians 3, to feel gratitude. We could go on and on and on and on. There is almost no emotion that human beings feel that we aren't commanded to feel under certain contexts by our God. This is fascinating. What in the world do you do with it if it's absent? When you read Romans 12.10, that whether you understand or can apply the meanings of the Greek words philostorgos and Philadelphia, the main thing is this, God is commanding emotion, not action. I feel much more comfortable with commands to do than to feel. I know what to do with those first commands. If you command me to bring money, I'll do it. If you command me to be cheerful about it, I'm going to struggle, <laughs> right? right? This is the way human beings work. I can obey as a matter of volitional will all kinds of things that my heart is slow to catch up to. What do we do with this thing that God has this habit of doing wherein He commands us to feel things, not just do them? Surely this was one of the main points we took away from our study of Jonah last year. Do you remember Jonah? Jonah, in our study of Jonah, he was given a command by God to go and tell the Ninevites to repent. And he ran away and went the other way. Why? Not because he was afraid of the Ninevites, but because he despised them, hated them. He wanted God's judgment and wrath so badly to fall on that city, he could taste it. And so rather than going and telling them, repent, he went the other way, he fled. And God pursues Jonah. Jonah bring, is brought back, kicking and screaming, to the city of Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? Jonah does the stupid thing God wants him to do. And that's exactly how he feels about it. For a bunch of days, he walks all through the city saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And this obedience on the part of Jonah brings about the greatest revival in the whole of the Bible, maybe in the history of the world. God used him even in his brokenness. There's great encouragement in that, but God was not done with Jonah. That's not how the book ends. God was not satisfied. Thank you for doing the stupid thing. <laughs> his whole, the whole point of the book was Jonah's heart, that even when Jonah did what God wanted him to do but still hated the people he did it for, God's not satisfied. God was commanding Jonah to feel for the Ninevites what he ought to say. And the book ends with this quote from God. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left? And that question is just left there, hanging. This is the problem with Jonah. He did the thing, but God commanded him to feel, feel for those people what he felt. Can God do this? And how do we respond if our heart is wrong? St. Augustine has a famous quote. He said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. And this is so true. God, you are God. You can command whatever you want. I'm a lowly creature, a human being, and you are the Almighty. Command what you will. 
but I need your help to obey this command. You have to give me what's needed to obey it. Sometimes we have to trust God even for the ability to trust. And so this is the spirit with which we come to God. If this morning your heart is in some way wrong towards God's people or to another Christian, a brother or sister, you're aware of the commands that God has commanded you to feel for them, including brotherly affection, and you just can't get there in your heart, what do you do with it? I want to give you some help. The first thing I'd encourage you to do is to confess and repent. Uh, In Psalm 51, 17, a moment which is written by David following his sin against Bathsheba, he writes this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. If your heart is wrong this morning towards somebody, maybe somebody in this room, I would encourage you with all my heart to just go to God and confess it. Speak it out loud to Him. Say to Him, this is really off, and I'm aware of it, and I can't seem to fix it on my own. I need your help. Begin by simply confessing it. You will feel, even from that moment, uh, some help. I'd encourage you to trust in a specific promise from Scripture. For example, in 2 Corinthians 9.8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Take that promise from God back to God. Say, God, you've commanded some things that I'm having trouble obeying. You've said in your word, you will give me everything I need to abound in every good work. I need this feeling that's lacking in me. Will you give me that which you've promised? Will you give me affection? Philadelphia for the others. Or you might lean on Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, says God, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm your God. I'm going to help you. Say, God, that's your promise to me. I need help. I'm stuck. I can't feel what you've commanded. I can't gin up the feelings that you have rightly ordered me to as Lord. Will you give it to me as a gift? Or Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply every need. Your need for feeling, for right feeling, is a need. This is not a uh, gravy on the potato kind of thing and not an extra thing. This is a needed thing, a necessary thing. You can ask him for it and rely on His promise in delivering it. You can request a change of heart. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If you come to God and say, I'm deeply wrong." But I believe your promises, God, that you supply every need. 
and I need this. I'm asking you, Lord, to give me a new heart. Change me. Give me new affections. And then the last thing I would say is this, act. Act. (laughs) Until your heart catches up, start doing the right thing. And this brings us to the second half of the verse. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Finally, a command to do, not to feel. (laughs) You can show honor without feeling it. Did you know that? You can. And this is the two halves of this verse. Honor is different from affection. You can honor a person for whom you have no affection. We oftentimes criticize people in our culture who speak critically of the office of the president, especially when they go abroad, when they're talking about the office of the president in front of a foreign audience in a way that is disrespectful of the office of the president. Even if at home you disagree vehemently with whoever's sitting in the Oval Office, you still think something about that office ought to be honored. Even if you yourself wish that guy was out of the office, (laughs) you still think, especially before foreigners, we should endeavor to honor the office of the presidency. A lot of Americans feel that way, maybe not all of us. But that's one example of something that you show honor even when you privately don't think they have any business being in that role, perhaps. You can show a person honor for whom you have no affection. You can honor a person through an act of volitional will, through your words and deeds. Paul doesn't want us to choose between these two ideas, as though if your heart is wrong, just take a break from church until it's right. Not so. Even if your heart, even if you don't fill a store ghost with Philadelphia, you don't love with brotherly affection, you can still show honor. And in fact, showing honor can be done in service to the ultimate goal of getting to the place where you love with brotherly affection. If you've ever driven a car, I went for a ride with somebody who came to my house with an antique vehicle, and it was one of the vehicles that like, kind of existed before power steering. And the thing about power steering is you, it's really hard to move the tires until you start m- moving the car. But once the car is in motion, you can turn it more easily. I think there's a spiritual principle here that's the same. And that very often, in the process of showing honor, our heart kind of catches up. In the heart of praying and confessing and saying, Lord, my heart's wrong, but I'm going to do what's right. Please give me a new heart in the doing of it. He's pleased to meet us there. I think this is a helpful thing for us to see and understand about how all this works. Paul really doesn't want us to choose between brotherly affection and showing honor, but to do both. And in showing honor, this can be done in service, again, to that ultimate goal of growing in our affections. To show honor means basically to prefer someone over yourself, to treat them with your words and time and deeds as being worthy of your service. They may, in fact... Be people who are either difficult for you. (coughs) Sorry. It's not COVID. I've been tested, but I did have a cold earlier in the week. Let me just get that out there. Everybody's like, oh, maybe we should leave. They may, in fact, be people who are either difficult for you or maybe just very different from you. 
For example, Paul says to Christian slaves, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. If I was a slave, I would probably struggle to feel some affection for the person who was master over my life. But Paul commands them to show them honor. I think that's an interesting distinction. Another example is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 23. He gives a comparison between weak members of the church and certain parts of the human body. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, he says, we bestow the greater honor. John Piper says this in one of his sermons on this verse. He says, what does it mean to outdo one another in showing honor? I think it boils down to prefer to honor rather than be honored. If you try to out-honor someone, it means you love to honor more than you love to be honored. You enjoy elevating others to honor more than you enjoy being elevated to honor. So don't be giving energy to how you can be honored, but how you can honor. Put to death the craving for honor. Cultivate the love of honoring others. And I think we should beware of honoring only certain kinds of people. I think within any church family that you go to, you just immediately click with some people, and other people, you like them okay, they're there too, but you don't really, I don't know, you don't just cotton to them, if I can use that expression. They just aren't your kind of people. And I think that part of this command to show honor to outdo one another in showing honor is to go to all different kinds of people. And I think this is one of the cool things about this idea about party of eight, you know, is that we're just going to mix and mingle. We're going to get together with unlike people, maybe people that we don't. The, the old maxim is true, birds of a feather really do flock together. And what we need to do, I think, is break out of that a little bit. And show honor to people of different socioeconomic classes, different generations, different education levels, different sexes, maybe a different way of dressing, or maybe even just different ways of vo vocational, like you work in one field and go mix it up with people who work in a different, whatever it is, I don't know. God gets really angry when He sees us being partial. Take this example out of James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention, that is, you show honor, that's my, those are my words added, to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. That's what he says. Now, I think we can extend this principle to lots of areas beyond wealth. I think there's lots of areas where people come into any gathering of fallen human beings and we show partiality and honor to one group over another. And God really is repulsed when He sees that among His people. It's really an unattractive thing because it doesn't represent Him at all. 
It's not his heart. It's not how he operates. So he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Be gracious. Now, the way this all ties into small groups, you cannot, you cannot obey this command that we just spent time in on a Sunday morning service very easily. (laughs) If you want to demonstrate and live out loving one another with brotherly affection, how do you do that sitting in a pew staring at me for a time and then walk out the door, go to your car, and go home? This command cannot be obeyed very easily in a Sunday morning worship gathering. How can you outdo one another in showing honor as we sit here like you're sitting in a movie theater? You can't. This is not a one another gathering. Believe you me, this is also commanded. This is also good. This is also something to be held up as excellent and worthy of your time. Sunday morning worship services are great, and I think there is a biblical mandate for this too. But I'm just saying if this is all that my... If if this is all that my time with God's people looks like, I am not living out the one another commands very well. This has to be... This observation has to be made. If you want to flourish as a follower of Jesus, you need something more than Sunday morning. You need to be a one another person among one another people. We need to philostorgos one another with Philadelphia. (laughs) We need to give these people an elevated place in our affections, like the one we have reserved for our close family members, and live in a way that makes that visible. And until my heart catches up, I'm going to outdo everybody in showing honor. I'm going to consider others. I'm going to think about them. I'm going to go to them. I'm going to sign up for party of eight. (laughs) I'm going to even run the the risky thing of doing that. I'm going to sign up for a small group, even before I know who else is going to be in it. Because I'm going to resolve to be a person who outshows, outdoes others in showing honor. So once again, I come away from this verse uh, just filled with this vision of the kind of person I want to be and the kind of church I want to be a part of. And going back to our first Sunday together when we first dove into the one another passages, I said to you there are two dangers in studying these verses together. One is that we would hold a very, we'd be very much like perfectionists with ourselves, I look at this verse, guys, and I come away with a deep abiding sense that I have blown it. (laughs) I'm not good at obeying this verse particularly. I want to get better. I want to be more like Jesus in the way I live out Romans 12.10. And then I look at, some people look at the church, though, and instead of saying to themselves, holding themselves to a perfect standard, they hold the church around them to a perfect standard, and they say, man, this is not what the church has been to me ever. They've not loved me with a brotherly affection. They've not shown me honor. And again, I think these are the twin dangers when we study these passages together. Either we'll beat up on ourselves or we'll beat up on the people around us. I don't want you to walk out of here doing either. Let's respond to sin in our own lives with repentance. If I look at Romans 12.10 and I say, I am falling way short of what you've said here, God, I should respond to that with repentance. 
And let's respond to sins in others with the way that Jesus responded to sin in us, with grace and mercy, patience, right? I think we need to be those kinds of friends to one another, and we need to um, respond, though, with repentance to sin in our own lives, even as we respond with forgiveness to those who have sins around us. All right, let's close here in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we have been challenged by your word this morning, by your command to feel. Father, some of us very naturally feel brotherly affection for one another. Others of us, God, might struggle to get there. Maybe we're hurt. We're church hurt. Uh, Maybe others have wronged us in some significant ways, and we are struggling to obey your commands to feel things for them that aren't natural to us. Father, we ask you to give us a new heart. Father, we ask you, Lord, to make real among us what this verse just described. Father, we're not a book club. We don't just come here week after week to talk about our favorite book, the Bible. The Bible, every word of it was meant to be lived. And Father, our prayer as we leave this place today is that you would take what the time we've spent in your word today and that it would echo in our hearts throughout this week by the Holy Spirit. God, bring our minds back to this passage we've spent time in over and over throughout the week. Help us to move in obedience to what you've said here. God, maybe that means showing honor to somebody that we've been snubbing. Maybe that means beginning with a prayer of confession and repentance and bringing your promises to us to give us all that we need to live the Christian life and trusting in those promises that you can provide us a new heart. But Father, I pray that State Road is a place where we would love one another in a special way, that we would give these people here within our church family a special place in our hearts like the one we reserve for our close family members, that we would truly feel a storgos one another with Philadelphia. And Father, I pray that this would be a place where we outdo one another in showing honor, that we would be a people who love to prefer others rather than be preferred. And God, would you make such a place flourish here? Oh God, what a wonderful thing it would be to live in such a community and be a part of it. God, make it real here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.